Praise God, He is constantly delivering us a feast with His Word, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Last time we were talking about the story of King Saul, last time we were in 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago, God had just used King Saul to win this massive victory over Nahash, which means the snake, the evil king of the Ammonites. And at the end of that chapter, there's this footnote at the end of the chapter where Samuel, the prophet, calls all the people to go to Gilgal, which is the the city, the traditional city where Israel would gather to remember God's covenant. And so Samuel calls everyone to go to Gilgal for this ceremony to renew the kingdom. And the thing is, it's not to renew the kingdom of Saul because that just started, right? What's happening is God is calling Israel to renew the kingship of God but now under this new leadership structure of a king. He's calling them to Gilgal to what we call a covenant renewal ceremony. And so now let's, this chapter here, chapter 12, or chapter, yeah, chapter 12 is uh, the description or the account of that covenant renewal ceremony. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you sitting today because it's another a fairly long reading. Uh, from the Old Testament, but let's all pay attention as we listen intently together to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. This is, uh, I'm going to start at oh, chapter 11, verse 14, the footnote, and then we'll go into the ceremony itself. <clears throat> then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have, found, you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And then Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And when Jacob went to Egypt, And the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hands of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw 
that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. And when the Lord your God, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king." And so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, and yet, Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank You um, for Your word, for for the honesty of it, but also for the compassion of it, Lord, uh, in this passage. You are showing great compassion and mercy to your people, and we pray that you would help us to see that, Lord. We pray especially that you would help us to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus as we remember that you are a covenant-keeping God and that you tell us these things for our good and for our welfare, Lord, so that we would have life. And we pray this, Lord, In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early 20th century, in the age of exploration, there was a race. There was races all over the place to discover new lands and discover new places. And the last, one of the last places on earth for discovery was Antarctica, the South Pole. Uh, and in that race, there, was, there were two main guys heading to get to the North Pole, Pole, Pole first. One, uh, the bad guy, was a guy named Roland Admundsen. He was Norwegian. He kind of had a bad temper. He was a little bit of a trickster. And publicly, people didn't really like him so much. But the, the darling of the race to Antarctica was a man named Robert Falcon Scott. He was already a famous Antarctic explorer, uh, he was smart, he was ambitious, he was a decorated naval officer, and probably most important, he was British, and people loved the British in the age of exploration. 
Uh, but Scott made a terrible mistake. In his planning and preparation for the drive to the South Pole, he completely underestimated how often and how much food they would need on the way back. And so he spread the food depots out too far. They had too far a distance to go between the stores of food, and he, the food that was there was too sparse. It didn't contain enough for them to eat. And then you add to that the cold and the exhaustion and the disorientation of a journey like that, and it was literally a recipe for disaster. And at the end of the day, as the men made the return trip, they grew weaker and weaker until finally, just 11 miles short of their last food depot, they all died. They ran out of nourishment. Now, you know, God says that his word is like bread. In the Gospels, Jesus says that the word of God is even more important to him than eating because what he's trying to get across to us is that just how, just as bread, as food nourishes our bodies and makes us physically strong, the word of God and God's worship nourishes and strengthens our souls and our spirits. Uh, in the, and in the Old Testament, whenever Israel would break the covenant with God, which happened how often? All the time. That's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is a history of Israel's covenant breaking and a history, more importantly, of God's faithfulness to restore them over and over again. Whenever Israel would break the covenant with God, he would bring them back into nourishment, back into, into health by, by uh, calling them into a covenant renewal ceremony to remind them how, port- how important it was to be fed on the word of God uh, how badly we need that nourishment to, to hear his word and to worship him. It was literally life to their souls and it's life to our souls as well. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. Israel is doing what Israel did, which was pretty much running after everything and anything other than God for satisfaction. Uh, in, in, in doing so, they were literally starving themselves to death out of the spirit uh, food of God's word and worship until they became weaker and weaker and eventually were enslaved to some evil king. And God is doing what God does throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. God, in his unbreakable covenant love for Israel, he has rescued them again and now he is giving them this feast in the wilderness in the form of this covenant renewal ceremony. And in it, through this, the Holy Spirit is teaching the Israelites, and he's also teaching us three really important things. The first one that he wants them to know, wants us to know, is that there's no real external threat to God's people because of God's power and protection over us. The real threat that we face is a self-imposed spiritual starvation from walking away. And the second big truth that God wants to teach his people and us in this is that our sin is never an occasion for God's abandonment of us. Might be an occasion for discipline, but never an occasion for God's abandonment of us. It never has been and never will be because Christ has won our freedom already. And third, 
specifically to us, is that we need to be fed in the wilderness, in the spiritual wilderness that we live in, just as much, maybe more so, than the Israelites did back in the day. And so we're going to look at those three big important truths that God is teaching us through this passage, through this covenant renewal ceremony. The first one is that the real threat we face is a self-imposed spiritual starvation. That's what takes out more people than anything. Let me first, let me show you, let me show you how this, this service is working here, the elements of it, and tell, tell you what their purpose is first. It starts really in earnest, verses 6 through 11, uh, in what we call a historical prologue, and that's really where God is calling us to recount, to remember all of his faithful acts of salvation in the past. And, God, and, uh, and Samuel speaks this, he gives a sampling of God's enemies from the, from the south, from the north, from the east, and from the southwest, surrounding Israel as like a way of showing, that, showing them and saying to them that God has delivered you from all of your enemies consistently. Uh, and, that he, and why would you walk away from that? And the second part of the covenant ceremony is verses 12 through 15, where Samuel reads to them covenant stipulations or really covenant law, recounting to them their present sin and the consequence of it. And in this case, their sins, it's really bad. This is almost a low point for Israel because in the past, in the past where they get into this, this pattern, they would sin against God. They'd come under the oppression of an evil king. They would call upon God for their salvation. But this time, they didn't even do that. They didn't even call upon God for salvation. They were calling upon they were calling for a king of human means, just like the nations to come and save them from the oppressors that surrounded them. And so they'd really just forgotten God altogether. And then the third part, in verse 16 through 18, is this covenant sign, or really a theophany almost, where God brings in this thunderstorm. It's in the, it's in the middle of the dry season is the important thing about that. It's in the harvest season when it never rained in Israel. And so God brings in this massive thunderstorm so that nobody could think, oh, this is just a weather pattern or this is some kind of coincidence. They would know that God had the power to bring a thunderstorm in. And the big question, though, big question is this. Why, what, what was God's purpose to all of this? Why is God calling them to recount how often they had strayed his, his salvation of them over and over again, call them to remember and to conf- repent and confess of their sins. Why? Why is God doing that? Is he doing it to condemn them? Or to shame them? Or to make them feel bad? There's a real warning here, for sure. He says that, if you utterly reject God, utterly reject God over the course of a lifetime, you'll be swept away. There's two ways we can do that. We can utterly reject God by rejecting to obey Him at all, make up our own rules for life. And the other way to utterly reject God is to approach Him through the law and our own law-keeping and good works as, as a means to uh, win from Him our own salvation. That is utterly rejecting the necessity of God's salvation for us. And both of those things are a way of neglecting and utterly rejecting God. But the bigger purpose, the big reason God is doing this is to get them to repent. 
and to confess of their sins. And why does he want so badly for us to repent and confess our sins? To say, to rub it in our face? No, no, no. He wants them to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the gods and the things that they were worshiping were empty things, empty things. The word he uses here for empty is the same word as the beginning of creation where it says the earth was without form and empty. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean worthless things of no value. It means things that don't really even exist. He's trying to tell them, but all the God that you are worshiping, he doesn't even exist. And to prove that, to put an exclamation point on that, he brings this thunderstorm in because why? What is Baal? Baal is the god of the thunderstorm. That's who Baal was. The Canaanites, the Philistines, they worshiped Baal because he was the one that could bring in thunderstorms and rain and give them blessing, which was produce, which was wealth, which was security, which was stability in the world. And so by God, by making a thunderstorm happen in the middle of the dry season is saying, that ain't Baal that does that. There is no Baal. That's the Lord God who does that. And you're foolish to go somewhere else to something that doesn't even exist. You know, people do that all the time. On our website, we, we talk about the fact that we... we as a church, what we do is we help people who are discouraged by pop culture religion discover the historic Christian faith so that they can grow their faith into something beautiful. And in that discussion, we talk about how most people are willing to believe in God as long as they're willing to dictate the terms of who God is and what he should expect for us. And that kind, that kind of religion works pretty good until you get to the place where you really need to know who God is more than you need to tell him who he should be when you really need the power of God in your life. And when you get to that spot, the God of your imagination cannot come through. And God is telling them, don't do that. Don't go after the God of your imagination. It's empty and it's not able to help you, but... The other thing he wants them to know is that the gods they were worshiping are dangerous. And not in the sense that we typically think. They weren't dangerous in the sense that they had any real power in and of themselves because they were nothing. But what they did have was the power to lure them away from the sustenance, from the food, from the nourishment of God's word and the worship of him out into the desert where they would become weaker and weaker and slowly atrophy away spiritually. That's the danger. The real danger that we face as Christians is a self-imposed spiritual starvation by walking away from the nourishment that God provides us in his word. It's like, it's really like eating junk food, right? Which is almost worse than not eating at all. If you're not eating at all, at least you know you're hungry, but if you're eating junk food, if you're eating food that's basically sawdust and chemicals and food parts that have been separated, you feel full, kind of, but eventually, <laughs> eventually it starts to break down your body and you catch some kind of awful disease that takes you out. And so the first reason God told Samuel to do this ceremony this way was to get the people to repent and to confess their sins 
so that they would know they'd been feeding on empty things uh, so they would avoid and not end up starving themselves to death. And the second reason, second reason, is to reassure them and to let them know that their sin was never an occasion for God to abandon them. That's the second big truth. Their sin was never an occasion for God to abandon them. One of the last covenant relationships that we have culturally is the relationship we have with our kids. Culturally, it used to be marriage. The marriage relationship was a covenant, which meant you made a promise to love that person no matter what, no matter what they did. We've changed that now to we agree to stay married to people as long as they are able to fulfill us and give us what we need. And what that does is put two people together in a giant vacuum against one another trying to suck fulfillment out of life one another and they empty each other out and end up splitting apart and going their separate ways. And so now it's perfectly, it's perfectly legitimate and reasonable culturally to say, well, I just fell out of love with them and I... I, need to, I, I just need to go and find someone who will fulfill me. But imagine saying that about your kids. It would be culturally unacceptable. It still is culturally unacceptable if someone were to say, you know, I'm just not getting what I used to get out of my kids when they were little and cute. And now I think I just need to separate myself from this and maybe go find some other kids. Can you imagine what people would say about you if you did that? Totally unacceptable. Why? It's because the child-parent relationship, father-mother-children relationship is still covenantal in our culture. My kids, they may sin against us. Do they sin against us? Amen, they sin against us. (laughs) But listen, no matter how much... My kids sin against me. They, can't, they, might, they may sin and damage my relationship, so it needs to be restored, but they cannot sin their way out of not being my child anymore, ever. No matter what they do, I'm their dad, I'm their father, they're my children. Isn't it remarkable that that is the relationship that God has given us, the way to think about our relationship with Him? Father, children. That's not on accident. And in the Bible, it talks about that we have been adopted into that family. And in that time and place, in that culture, adoptions were irreversible. Once you officially adopted a child in your family, you could never unadopt them. They were just as much your children as the natural children. Paul, the apostle, who wrote much of the New Testament, used that analogy on purpose to teach us those fundamental, super important things. And so, listen to what God says, keeping that in mind, that He's our Father and we are His children. What does God say to these people who have repeatedly abandoned Him? What does He say to these people who have over and over again run after other gods? and gotten themselves in big trouble to where God had to go and rescue them repeatedly. What does he say to these people who have confessed their sins? And that's really important. It's possible to be in the church and be kind of upset about your sin, but not really. 
and that might that that would be reason to question you know, do I really belong to God? But if you hate your sin, if your sin grieves your heart, if your innermost person you delight in the law of God and it breaks your heart when you break God's law, not because you got caught or because somebody found out, but because you hate the fact that you have sinned against your Father in heaven who loves you so much. What does God say to these people who have consistently abandoned him? I know we think he's going to say, what we're afraid he's going to say is done with you. That's it. Off to the state home. Unadopted. Over. But that's not what he says. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, don't be afraid. What a remarkable thing to say to a bunch of people who constantly abandon him. Don't be afraid. And why is it we should not be afraid? What is it that gives us security before God? We have our own reasons. We want our security before God to be in our loyalty to Him. We want our security to God, with God to be about our good works that we do or our great service. But honestly, I hope that's not what it is. Can you really think about it? The requirement is perfection. To be right with God and safe with God based on what we do requires absolute perfection every day of our lives. What God says gives us security with Him is this, verse 22, it says, first, that God has saved us for His great name. (laughs) What that means, Paul brings that out in Ephesians 3, verse 10, he says that God has saved us so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because it just takes the whole thing totally out of the arena of us and what we do and don't do. It's really that verse is saying the reason that God has saved us was to display his wisdom, his righteousness, and his glory and his goodness to the angelic realms, to the unseen world. Ultimately, he loves us, yes, but it isn't even about us, really. This is about God glorifying himself, and in part of that, he loves us, cares for us, brings us into his family. And the second thing it says that we are saved, same verse, verse 22, because of his pleasure, which just means that he wants to, he wanted to save us, and he's God, and he gets to make that choice. That's why we're here, and that's why we are secure in him, which is a much greater security than anything we could ever do. There's a theologian, Robert Bergen, he says this, Israel's Previous efforts had never been the basis for God's selection of the nation and their failures would not send him away. Israel was inextricably held in the iron grip of God's love. Meaning they, weren't, they didn't achieve the status of adopted children because of what they had done. God picked them. And in a sense, that's true. 
They can't unachieve that by what they do. We're secure in God's love because he has chosen to love us. And in his love, he is making us lovely. He is beautifying us. He is strengthening us and making us to look and be more like Jesus every day. So the big question of that is how? How can God give absolute salvation to these people who are constantly messing up, to these awful misfits who are just running away from God left and right? And it's kind of the same way we do. And the answer is ultimately Jesus. In the Old Testament, they had the shadows looking forward to who Jesus would be. And that's what they're doing in this covenant ceremony. They are they're presenting a covenant sacrifice. This is a, what they show us in the text is a peace offering, which is a, a sacrifice that is made to God for the people's sins, covering their sins. But there were also, in these covenant renewal ceremonies, also the whole burnt offering, of, of an animal that was killed and sacrificed for the sins of the people to cover their sins. Uh, and, on, and, and when they do that, what happens in, in verse 14? You know, it says they offer up this, or 15, they offer up this sacrifice and then all of the people, all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They rejoiced in the knowledge of God's salvation for them. They knew what that sacrifice meant. It was pointing forward to the Lord who would ultimately come and be our sacrifice on the cross, who would save us from our sins. There's some more even subtle, subtler things along those lines. Samuel is presented as a picture of Jesus too. He's the mediator of the covenant. He is presented as, how, as being righteous. And then he's presented as entering into the judgment with the people. He's presented as continuing to instruct the people through his word by the power of the spirit. The prophet is called the mouth of God because he speaks God's word to the people. And he's interceding for them to the Father. All these things are pointing to the reality of who Jesus is for us. That he, he inaugurated the new covenant. Everything that this was a picture of, he made real when he died on the cross. The Old New Testament presents the, the, the cross as an altar. And Jesus as the priest and also the sacrifice, offering up his body to God as the ultimate sacrifice that would pay for our sins and make us right with God forever so that our security would then be based in God's character, his love, and his purposes for us in the world and would never, ever, ever again have to be about what we did or didn't do. And if you are repentant, if in your heart you love God, and, lo- and desire to do the things that please God, that is gro- evidence that you belong to him. And if that's true, he will not let you go, and your sin is never an occasion for him to abandon you. Third thing. That's the last thing. This is really especially for us. Is that we need to be fed in the wilderness every bit as much as the Israelites did in the old days. Now look, have you, know, have, you noticed, have you noticed that your heart is hardwired to do a certain thing? <laughs> it's hardwired to do a lot of things, <laughs> right? But it's what it is hardwired to do, and this is 
This is crazy when you think about it. Our hearts are hardwired to forget everything that I just said about Jesus. Because tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and your brain is going to tell you that God will love me more if I do better today. Or it's going to tell you that if I mess up today, I am less secure with God. Or he's going to be distant from me. Our hearts are hardwired to forget this. Which is why God reminds us every single week. We have to be reminded in a supernatural way every week by word, by sacrament, that all of those things that I just said about Jesus are in fact true. Now listen, I want to show you again. Let me look at the elements that I just laid out in the Old Testament covenant renewal ceremony. First, that that historical prologue where people called to remembrance God's great salvation to them corresponds to our call to worship and to our, our songs of adoration where we remember in our songs all the great things that God has done for us. Today we sang and remembered what mercy has done for us, that God brought us out of darkness and into light, that, we, that his mercy has saved us. We entered into our worship today remembering and praising God for the goodness that he has done. And then the second part of the covenant renewal ceremony was the covenant law, which corresponds to the fact that we read the law. Today we read Hebrews chapter 10, reminding us that we have a tendency to walk away and to not nourish ourselves or to treat the worship of God as, a, as, a, uh, as a not a very important thing in our lives. Uh, and then we had a, the, the, the covenant renewal ceremony would have a time that there would be confession and repentance, which corresponds to our corporate confession of sin. There was an assurance of forgiveness. Don't be afraid because God has, is pleased to save you corresponding to we have an assurance of forgiveness where we say your sins are forgiven according to the you know, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's intercessory prayer. We pray knowing that the Lord is also praying for us. The Holy Spirit is praying for us and that, God, and that Jesus is representing us in the heavens as our high priest interceding for us as we pray. We have instruction by the Lord through the Holy Spirit, which corresponds to the sermon that we have. And then we have a covenant sign. It's not a thunderstorm, nor is it a sacrifice. The sacrifice has already been made, but it's a covenant sign for the new covenant where God reassures us that everything we're hearing about Jesus is true, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, we are secure with him forever. And also, just as a side note, remember, listen through that whole section. Go ahead and read it at home when you get home. Samuel speaks, the people respond. Samuel speaks, the people respond. There's a pattern of call and response. Now, why am I telling you all that? For 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, almost all Christian worship services follow this pattern because for hundreds of years, century after century, theologians pulled these principles out of the text as the principles God has given us by which he wants to be worshipped. For almost 2,000 years, 
Christian worship service was about God's people coming before God to be renewed and restored and refreshed in God's covenant love for them so that they, so that we could then go out into the world to be light. And then, about 40 years ago, people started to mess with that and say, Sunday service really should be more about the visitor, the unbeliever who comes in. It should be more about evangelism. And Christian worship service began to lose elements of this pattern of worship in favor of evangelizing people that would come and visit. And, the, you know, there's a, there's a couple things that are sad about that, but one of them is that doing this, seeing God's people in the worship of God, hearing the forgiveness of sins, God's assurance of, of salvation and instruction of God's word, all these things are the most evangelistic things we could do for people to witness God's people worshiping him. is one of the most wonderful things that we could possibly do. And so what this means is this, that Christian, the liturgy, what we call the liturgy, which is really, it's, it's a little bit misleading. Everyone has a liturgy. It just depends on whether it's based out of the biblical patterns of worship or based on our own ideas of what worship should be. And trust me when I tell you, it's always better to go with God's ideas than our ideas. Amen? That means that this liturgy, it's, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's for us in the New Testament age. It's a feast in the wilderness where God gives to us His Word and reestablishes us, strengthens us in it, and then engages us in the worship of him, which spiritually strengthens us, and it is literally food for our souls. So here, concluding, two big takeaways. I want you to remember this. Number one, it's a bad idea to toy with God's revealed systems of worship because... When you do that, you make the food sparse by cutting it out. We can be innovative in the style with which we do these things, but the substance of it, we're much smarter to follow what God says will nourish us rather than things that we believe might nourish us. And the second thing is that it's even a worse idea to neglect this altogether. Don't be like the Antarctic party that spread the food out too far. We need this every week. We always encourage people, come to church every week. You won't notice maybe what's happening, but you will notice it in the absence of it. There is a, we've noticed, a, almost there is a close correlation between people who don't come to church regularly and who need serious biblical counseling. <laughs> That's just a fact. Why is that? Part of the reason is that coming here And being fed every week keeps us from spiritual starvation. And that's why God wants us to do it, because he loves us. He wants us to be well fed so that we can be strong, so that we can represent him in the world because he wants the best for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the beauty of it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember these things that your word is not only inerrant, but it's sufficient. It has everything that we need, and we are so much better off looking into these things and trusting how you have called us to worship you. And we see when we do that, that it's for our benefit. You're blessing us. 
You're calling us into blessing, into life, into spiritual nourishment, into maturity, into creating in us the image of Jesus so that we would become the kind of people who love and forgive and extend grace and radiate with the joy of eternal life now because that's who you've made us to be, Lord. And so we pray we would not neglect this feast that you've given us, that we would put it in a place of priority in our lives, and we trust that you will come through on your promises to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.